From Nashville, Tennessee, this is The Pivot, stories of people who've made a change. Welcome to The Pivot. My name is Andrew Osinga, and my guest today is David Zock. David is an abolitionist in a rock and roll band. He's traveled all over the world going undercover to help rescue girls from slavery and sex trafficking. It is a wild story. Nine to five, David is the front man for the band Remedy Drive. The band started as four brothers. We got to talk about how they had to quit being in a band together to be good brothers. It's also a pretty wild story. Maybe not quite as wild as going undercover in a Thailand nightclub, but you know. It was really fascinating to learn about the work that David and the organization he's a part of, Exodus Road, are doing in some of the most dangerous places on earth. Now, a little warning, there are some pretty dark scenarios talked about in this interview, and if you're going to listen to this with kids in the room, it might be wise to have a conversation with them first or listen to another episode. Uh, but here was a really fun story about this one. I was sending some files over to my friend John, who does such an amazing job helping me edit these episodes. I told him I had interviewed David Zock. I said, he's in a band called Remedy Drive. Dude, John says, I like just discovered them last week and I can't stop listening to them. Their commodity album is amazing. So that's pretty high praise. John, uh, John likes rock music and he knows what he's talking about. So if you haven't heard Remedy Drive, you should check them out. Their new album, Imago Amor, just released a few weeks ago. But before we talk to David, I want to tell you about nine-year-old Bernadette. Her family was one of the poorest in town. They found themselves on the brink of starvation more times than they'd like to count. Their living situation was dire. They could barely afford the simplest items like soap, pencils for school, let alone food to satisfy their ever-present hunger pangs. Every morning as the sun rose, Bernadette's parents, Medyard and Alphonsine, woke to their tiny piece of land in the rolling hills of Gatunda, Rwanda, and wondered how they would make it through another day to provide for their daughters. You know, I try to imagine what it would feel like to be in this situation. To be a mother, like standing in the aisles of Target, realizing you don't have enough money in your wallet to buy milk for the kid looking up at you from the shopping cart, or to struggle with the painful reality that even a pack of pencils for your kids was too expensive. I can imagine coming home empty-handed again with no answer to the question, what are we eating for dinner? Sometimes for us it's felt like we've been there, but we never really have, like this. It may seem like a stretch for us here to understand what Medard and Alphonsine felt on a daily basis, aching to change their situation with no real options. But no matter where you live, if you're a parent, the inability to give your child everything they need strikes a deep and distressing chord. No job leads to no savings, no money, no food on the table. Poor nutrition leads to sickness, which leads to missed school and chronic health problems. The list goes on. And they needed more than a quick answer. They needed a life-changing solution. And that's where Food for the Hungry programs helped. Because supporters like you joined the Chicken of the Month Club, the family was given chickens to raise. Healthy chickens sold well at the market, which brought in money to invest in a bigger piece of land, and now they're raising pigs and selling crops. Through Food for the Hungry, their father, Medard, learned all these techniques and shifted his potential into profit. Because Food for the Hungry's approach is holistic, it creates a foundation for the entire family to overcome poverty. And for Bernadette's family, raising chickens and pigs opened many doors. They could now cook a balanced diet for their family. Their children were healthy and they could afford health insurance. Hygiene is approved. They could go to school regularly. And all of this because of Food for the Hungry and the Chicken of the Month Club. 
And perhaps the best part for the family is that now they have something you can't quantify, something they've never had before, and that's a vision for their future. And friends, you can make this kind of thing happen for another family somewhere in the world through joining the Chicken of the Month Club, fh.org slash pivot. $28 sends two chickens to a family in need every month, a family like Bernadette's. fh.org slash pivot. You can put something good into the world that so desperately needs it. And now, here's my conversation with David Zock. Uh, actually, I just have to say this. David has the most, like, shockingly amazing head of hair that I've ever seen. He and I are roughly the same age. I have to wear a hat every day now because, you know, it ain't what it used to be. David's over here just playing the Samson game. Some things in life just aren't fair, guys. I had to let you know is a thing of wonder. Okay, here's me and David. Okay, so... Uh, Let's go back to the beginning. I first sort of knew about you, I think, because I started writing with your couple of your brothers, yeah. because you were in a band with three brothers. Three brothers, mm -hmm. uh, and you're still in the band, mm -hmm. but the brothers are not. Yeah. Um, so talk me, talk me about how uh, how you start how you start a band with your brothers, which that makes sense to me. Yeah. It's what I desperately want for my three daughters. I want them to be, I really want them to just be the band just We'll see of, what you say after I tell my story. Yeah, I know. Ahead. So I want to hear about it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how, so how'd you guys get started? And then I'd love to hear about how sort of how that transitioned into, into what it is now. But then I really want to talk about sort of what you've been doing outside of the band, but yeah. let, let's start with the band. So I played Disarm by the Smashing Pumpkins my yes. sophomore year of high school or my freshman year Okay, uh, in front of the whole student body but even leading up to learning the guitar we, we weren't allowed to listen to rock and roll so i had to sneak smashing pumpkins and didn't know who the rolling stones were and that and you guys are in nebraska right yeah okay up in nebraska my parents are awesome amazing people but playing the guitar plugging it in you know it just was like what is this this is incredible mm -hmm. and then i convinced philip to start playing the bass dan got a drum pad it looked like a burner mm -hmm. you know like a stovetop yeah yeah and we just started messing around a little bit, played a talent show our senior year. In college, Philip and I invited our younger brother, Paul, to play drums. I think we played Sound of Silence at a, like a cabaret night, a choir thing. <laughs> and he was in junior high. And then mm -hmm. when we went to college at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, we'd play free shows on the quad. Mm -hmm. Philip uh, was the guy, like the cliche guy playing frisbee in the quad of the campus all the time. So he knew everybody. Yeah, and he's handing out invitations. Uh, we we're putting up table tents mm -hmm. at the, all the dorms. Yeah. Know, like a little advertisements, posters, with just Paul's face. <laughs> <laughs> he's going like this. He's stretching his arms oh out. Oh, my gosh. Come hang out with this guy. A big smile. And uh, we were called Remedy at the time. Okay. And that's how it started. Okay. So at what point did you decide, let's do this as a job? Philip was getting contracts from this roofing guy and we the four of us were roofing together. I did I was a little late here because I had people on top of my roof. Oh, really? Yeah, because the wind took off a bunch of shingles. Oh. No, hopefully we get a new roof. But it'd be nice to so, get the whole but new thing. I uh roofing is no joke. Especially in Nebraska. Because there's these things called shakes. And it's from the Dust Bowl era. And it's these wooden things that go over and people just threw down shingles on top of them. So we'd have to I mean like how the houses were built. Yeah. So the top Above the rafters, there was tons of pieces of little wood that they'd use instead of asphalt shingles back in the day. Really? So we'd have to rip off three layers of tar asphalt shingles and then take pitchforks in and break all those shakes off and pull all the nails. Oh, my goodness. And so then bring all up four of you guys were doing this. Yeah. And 
Was that, how, how did like was that some, what your dad did? No, we just were. Phil was making money uh, for college, and then he'd hire us on. I was washing <laughs> windows too. That's where I was on top of the roof of Phil on 9-11, 2001. That's, really? You know, that's that we listened to the radio all afternoon, listened to what was going on. Oh my goodness! And we did the band one. So one one week we made three grand after working on this roof for two solid weeks, and then we did three shows that weekend and made similar amounts between merchandise and what we got paid. Mm-hmm. And that's where like, man, let's just figure out how not to do this thing. <laughs> let's just figure out how to do this other thing. Yeah. And it was, I mean, to get four guys, two wives at the time already. Okay. To agree to take that risk. It was, it was, we did it together. Yeah. We didn't know how to do it, but we just did it together. That's so fun, man. Yeah. Was it, when you look back at that season now, how do you feel about it? I have so many fond memories. My wife and I, we didn't have a computer or cell phones. We'd go to the university and use the computer lab to mm-hmm. look up potential um, people to call about booking shows. So you were booking the band from the college computer lab. Yeah. That's amazing. Because my wife enrolled in one class so we can get health insurance for her. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We paid ourselves $1,200 a month. Yeah. Hey, you made it. Phil, Phil only got eight because he wasn't married. <laughs> and we didn't have any way to like, that was just an example of like how we made decisions. Like Phil gets eight, you're not married, you have less bills. Yeah. Okay. You know, nobody really thought anything of it at the time. Yeah. So so how, how do you guys then, like at some point you guys signed to a record label and you are doing like you're, you moved to Nashville, yeah. right? Did, the, did you guys well, all move here? We did that for several years independently, started selling a lot of CDs at shows mainly. Mm-hmm. And then we were really against signing a record deal. Okay. But then we realized it'd be nice to have some help and mm-hmm. some exposure. Nice to have a team. And I'm really thankful we did. So we signed with Word Records in 2008. That's right. Okay. But and that then- was after a lot of like, we were playing 200 shows a year leading up to that. Dude, that's a lot. And yeah. were you you were married at this time. Was your mm-hmm. was your family on the road with you? How- yeah, it was a van. Okay. And uh, Jack, my son who's 15, I have so many memories of him just sitting in that car seat, just looking out, watching the desert go by, watching the mountains go by, watching the rolling hills of Oregon. He just grew up seeing the, the United States. He's been in all the states except for two. Really? Do you, do you see that in him now? He's cool because of it. He's cool because of growing up with not just a dad that that spent so much time with him. But his three uncles spent so much time with him. And my brothers invested so much in my son's life. It's it's formed his character. Hmm, that's really cool. Yeah. So it's not about the travel. It's about those relationships. Yeah, and the, and the adventure. He's so chill, you know. Hmm. Where Stella, she's ten. Uh, she's not as chill. She didn't, you know. She, she, Jack would wake up on this one arena tour. And he'd just get on his scooter and just go explore the arena on his on oh, his little so scooter. Fun. I mean, yeah, you got to just roll with whatever. Yeah, he was literally rolling with whatever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's my dad joke. So, so how does the band uh, transition? What, what, how how do brothers start? Kind of, do they just sort of find their their different callings? I mean, what? well, in the band we had, you know, I wrote all the songs leading up to getting signed. Okay. And so you met my brothers when the record label wanted us all writing with as many people as possible. Yeah. 
And part of the friction that led us apart was like, I was, I was like, Hey, that's my role. I've been the songwriter this whole time. And, mm. and all these outside voices, we're going to lose who we are by bringing in all these people we don't know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always been leery. I'd always been extra leery of that. And then with me and Phil too, Phil listened to cool music and mm -hmm. I did too, but I also knew that if we're going to, we're all having kids now and we're all getting married, we're going to need to actually be able to make some money to, to support this thing. So we got it, you know, we have to get something commercial. And, and so that was tension between me and Phil. Mm. Uh, and then not to mention driving our own bus, uh, not sleeping the way we should sleep. Yeah. Right? Like you're getting woken up at three by your brother. Yeah. Hey, your turn. Grabbing your foot and saying it's time to drive. Oh, I do and, not miss those And days. also it's 10 degrees out and he left you with, an eighth tank of gas or I left somebody with an eighth tank. <laughs> yeah. Like those are just all the t kinds of stupid things mm -hmm. that started to get between us. And, um, and it's different when you're 19 than when you're 29. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and there's also 10 years of it. And uh, being on is really unhealthy being on all day long. And mm -hmm. we, we were so great at giving so much to everybody mm. that we had nothing left over for each other. Like nothing left over for each other, no grace left over for each other. We gave people that stole from us a ton of grace, you know, mm. promoters, pastors, people that were hosting concerts, you know, we, we gave them grace and we were so accessible to our fan base, which I really like that about us, but we just ran out of grace and mercy for each other. And mm. I, I needed a lot of it. Mm. How are you guys now? Philip and I in this amazing I don't know. It's miraculous. We are best friends, hmm. uh, and we were the problem too. So it's unfair to Paul and Dan. Me and Phil were really the problem. Really, and he's produced our last four albums. That's awesome. Paul and I uh, are doing great. I, I I don't see Paul or Dan as much because me and Phil work together. But yeah, thankfully that you know we've moved on from that. We're more like me and Dan are more like kind of normal brothers, I guess. Yeah, back to being brothers. Yeah, that's good, man. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I get to see I get to see Paul a fair amount because he writes for the company I work for, and yeah. uh, I just he is wonderful, man. I mean, yeah. so talented, but just such a it's just always such a treat to be with him. And I remember that with Phil, the number of times we wrote together, it just like your parents did it right, man. Like you guys yeah. are all awesome. So I'm glad I'm glad to hear you guys are are uh, have mended that. But I imagine that was hard. It was awful. It was because like not just not just are you losing your bass player. Yeah. But you're losing your, you know, that friction with your own brother. So it was like going through three divorces at the same time. Did everybody leave at the same time? Yeah. So all of a sudden you're, you've got this band. And a bus and a wore out. you got the ten, name of a band. Ten-year-old sound system, yeah. Did you immediately start to rebuild or did you, like, what'd you do? I didn't know what to do. Like, what, what do you do? That's the only way I'm making a living. And so. And I, I'm imagining when it ended, it did not end well. Yeah. The healing was not probably immediate. Yeah. And I measure it. Stella's 10, a little over 10 now. And mm -hmm. it was the day I brought her home from the hospital that my brothers quit. There's oh. no good time to say it, but it was like we had a tour coming up in two weeks and it finished out that, that short little week tour. And then my wife and I were immediately like on YouTube looking for drummers, looking for, oh my you know, we, there was no time to to let like absorb it and were you still in nebraska at that point yeah okay so we moved here and that was a crucial part of the mending process as phil came over 
to help me um, pack up a moving truck to mm. send me send me to Nashville, and just the sorrow, and I saw his sadness, you know, and he just said, "Hey, I messed this up," in more words or less, and I responded, "No, I, I immediately." Respond. I'm such a proud, stubborn guy, hmm. but if you just show an ounce, it should be the other way around. I should be the guy initiating, but hmm. you just showed just this ounce of humility, and I just immediately said, no, it was me, and I think that was the seed that was planted for this beautiful reconciliation. Hmm. How long did that take? Like, that was a couple months after, okay, or maybe six months after, um, and then Jackie, boy, my son would be like, hey, Dad, can we listen to Uncle Phil's music? Because Phil had a, a side project mm -hmm. that, he, that he produced. And the more I listened to it, I just got this crazy idea of what if Philip <laughs> produced mm -hmm. our first indie album. Hmm. Or our first, you know, we had two albums on labels. And mm -hmm. when I was leaving the label, I thought, man, what if, you know, Phil's producing? Yeah. I wonder if that would be like, not a token of my appreciation, but I really believed in the way he was producing too. Yeah. And putting you in the room together to have to like, if you're going to work on this snare drum part, you've got to be able to like get along yeah, and figure out how to kind of rebuild. And everybody's telling Philip, like, Philip, like, <laughs> you've been down that road. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anybody that knew us. Oh, my goodness. Usually responded to that news with a curse word. Like, <laughs> what are so you? So it was, it was, you guys were like. Oasis Pe level. Not, you know, no, no. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, that would be me like sitting in the back. My favorite Oasis story is like uh, Liam shows up late to the show. It was an MTV Unplugged show. So, oh, I remember that one. So, Noel just does it without him, and Liam's like drunk in the balcony yelling at him. Standing in the audience, just flipping him <laughs> off. Like, it's the most watchable Unplugged of all time because yeah. it's, it's, what is happening? Yeah. yeah. No, we 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 <laughs> held it in, you know, and it, yeah, we we were able to, for the most part, people didn't really know that this thing was totally dysfunctional. Hmm. What was the process of deciding to keep going with the band? Because I imagine a lot of people might have been like, "Well, the band quit, hmm. and those are my brothers, yeah. and I've probably got some work to do. I'm going to quit this band, no. and you know, go get a roofing job and figure out what just yeah. happened." So what what kept you going? That's a great, man, no one's ever asked me that before. I mean, you think about changing the name, but I wrote Daylight. I wrote All Along. They were at radio. And my brother said, you know, Paul said, he's like, he's like, go, he's like, go, you have our blessing. Go, go find some guys and keep on going with this. Mm -hmm. If he wouldn't have said that, I would have been slow. Really? To make that call. Because we built it together. We did. Yeah. But I don't, like, I'm... You could ask me the same question today. Like, your kids are growing up. Why do you still want to go to her? Sure. <laughs> what a stupid idea. Why do you still want to go on the road and play music? It's, I don't know. It's just what I yeah. What I love doing. And I love writing songs. Yeah. And I believe in those songs, too. And I don't want to move on from those songs. They were so new. In 2010, those songs were brand new. You know, yeah. All Along was still... Um, so we put, this, we put this years of work in, in this these things that are out. Yeah. You wanted to see that through. Yeah. And then you get a new group of guys, and then all of a sudden it's you're back in the yeah. groove. And somehow, miraculously, finding Dave Moore, Corey Horn, and Timmy Jones, I found these amazing guys that, um, while we were still rough around the edges, uh, like these these guys are my best friends. Mm. You know, so has it been they, the same are. guys 
for the most part, even though we're kind of a collective now, which yeah. is really um, freeing for me. And I was thankful for this last year that everybody has things going on financially. Yeah. Everybody loves coming out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Timmy Jones drums for Chris Tomlin and uh, the hip hop artist Propaganda mm-hmm. and us. Oh, dude, I love Propaganda. Oh, yeah. I like Chris too, but I really like Propaganda. <laughs> um, and, you know, Corey's producing here in Nashville mm-hmm. and Phil's producing. So I, I have a selection of drummers, Tim. Tim Buell mm-hmm. was what replaced Timmy Jones when he moved on to for King and Country. But I love it that everybody's still part of it and still wants to be part of it. Yeah. Dave Moore, a guitar player, will come out on bass when he can. Oh, fun. Um, so it's weird. And it's a weird sort of thing for the fan base and the mm-hmm. community to uh, embrace. But they've been really cool because they're like, oh, who's this? Who's this guy? Well, yeah, yeah. I get to know him. But it's not like a revolving thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody that joins mm-hmm. kind of is joining indefinitely. Yeah, and, that's fun. And they don't have to leave. You know, you don't have to retire from the band. You're still part of it. Man, there was a season. Uh, I joined Cademan's Call about midway through that band. Yeah. And probably two or three years after that, I think we sort of made that move into being a collective. We now had just about every role had had probably two or three people that had okay. done it for a number of years. You know, yeah. we'd had two or three like long-term bass players, two or three long-term keyboard players. Yeah, Any of these guys can come out and fill. And it's always fun. Yeah. Like, and everybody plays a little differently. And so, but it's like the, now it's like the community supports, you know, the community of Cademan's Call brings you this night. Yeah. You know, and I imagine it's, it, it, that's a fun way to kind of do it. It's so freeing. Yeah. And then to see like the killers, right? Mm-hmm. They're down They're to the two same thing. members. Yeah. That helped me out a little. I mean, the goal is, you know, like you two, right? Or, or it is the Coldplay. That's the goal. And maybe it could have been that if if we would have made it to the level where the finances could support it and could support regular trips to L. Andrews. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's a therapist for people that aren't familiar. Yes. But. Who's free, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, man, that's that's really cool. Well, let's talk about what else you're doing with your time these days besides mm-hmm. the band mm-hmm. and flipping electric pianos, which we're going to talk about too. But you spend a lot of time these days overseas mm-hmm. Doing something uh, a little insane and I think probably amazing. Would you tell me about that? So for the last seven and a half years, which I love, I love it that you took me back to through all this that led up to it because all of this prepared me for this work. Really? Like touring, you know how it is. It's just a unique, you're in a lot of unique social settings and people are talking to you that you don't know. And the fact that we kept the band together, I wouldn't. This wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for that. But for the past seven and a half years, I've been on thirteen or fourteen trips to Asia and Latin America with a counter trafficking organization called the Exodus Road. The Exodus Road. Yeah. Okay. I disguise myself a little bit, and I use spy gear to uh, spy on mafias and criminal criminal networks and cartels that are trafficking teenage girls, especially and sometimes young boys and young girls for sex. And I use that spy gear and this cyber forensics software that the organization has access to uh, to help put together a target package for law enforcement. And then we partner with law enforcement to make raids that help rescue girls out of sex trafficking and help take down trafficking networks. Okay, so I have like 17,000 questions for Mm -hmm. you right now. One is like, I'm going to tell you a couple and then you can choose where you want to start. How on earth did you get involved in doing this? (laughs) Talking about like, 
Spy Gear and Mafias sounds really fun because I watch movies, but mm. I have, have a feeling it's probably not like movies. I'm so curious what that means. Mm. But at the heart of it, you're seeing unbelievably awful things. Yeah. And how does that shape you as a person? So let's start with how you get into this. Yeah. So a, a record label executive said to me, I came to him, I said, man, you know, I read this prophet Amos. And Amos said that that the creator's upset with us because we're singing and, and praying and talking, and yet we're not taking the cause of the poorest of the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And I was reading that kind of stuff at the time. And I, have you ever seen Bono's prayer breakfast speech to George W. Bush? Uh, it's been a long time. I mean, it it moved me, and a bunch of a bunch of things were leading up, and I. Was, I had the success that I never dreamed I'd have as a songwriter and as a musician. And I went to him and I said, I, I kind of want to leverage my songs to talk about justice, to talk about boy soldiers being enslaved and about trafficking. And, and he said some things. One of the things he said, he said, David, I'm a whore and I need you to give me something I can sell. That was his response to this idea. <laughs> and it really hit me hard. Like it really hit me hard. Like as, as in like, I immediately said, how do I get out of this relationship to myself? How do I figure out a way to get out of this contract? Because I do not want to work alongside with somebody that, that view a really guy, great person, mm. nice guy, really successful, but still I don't view myself that way. So I wrote down, I'm not a commodity. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started, honestly. Mm. And that was a song by the time I was out of the record deal. I had that song and a few other ones that focused on child soldiers. You remember Coney 2012? Yeah. My daughter sees that with me. Stupid move. She's five. We watched that documentary together. Wow. About boy soldiers being kidnapped, forced to fight. And she says, Dad, why not God protect those boys? And that's when I was like, I have to write this album. And so I'm halfway through writing an album called Commodity. I'm a soul inside a body. I'm not a commodity. And Matt Parker, who founded the Exodus Road in 08, he... 08 or, or 09, he was on the way to the to to be with a family of one of the kids in his youth group that was hit by lightning and he mm. died. And he's listening to all along and he's singing it. He's playing on a repeat. Wow. So this guy's a fan of the band already. Mm -hmm. And this is the part, this is just how it happened. Matt called a bunch of managers, including me, and he flew to Nashville. Every other meeting canceled for him. Mm. And I knew that if I'm going to release this album about justice, maybe we should team up with an organization. But it was kind of like one of the many things I had to do. Yeah. And then I'm sitting across from this guy that's rescuing girls out of sex trafficking and, and is trying to look for artists to talk about it. And I was just so moved. I'm, I said, Matt, I've already written half an album about this work. Can you take me over and I can finish the album? And then we'll use this album to, to talk about what we're doing. And that's how it all started for me. Yeah. But that's one thing to go over and see the work they're doing. It's yeah. another to wear disguises and spy gear. Yeah. So are you going, like, where are you going? Like, what, what does that look like? You like, yeah. just walk into a, hey, I'm an American. Who wants yeah. to sell me, a, you know, yeah. some people? Like, is that, like, is that, like, what are you doing? So it's strategic. I clearly don't know how to ask this question. Yeah, no, um, I, I, and I, that's good because I've no one's ever said it like that. Like, so I have to think about like what I'm trying to imagine, not knowing what these areas look like. 
there are commercial red light districts yeah. in a lot of parts of the world, especially especially kind of following some of our recent conflicts around the world. So there's in Asia because of Vietnam, there's all these red light districts that were propped up by because there were so many soldiers there, right? Mm. So there's demand for sex, there's demand for cheap sex, and they're going to meet that demand. Mm. And one of the biggest red light districts in Bangkok, Thailand, for instance, is called Soy Cowboy, Cowboy Street, named after a cowboy, an American soldier, right? Mm. That went and made a ton of money off of the girls of Thailand wow. and surrounding countries. So there's commercial red light districts that look one way. They look like Vegas, maybe a little bit, maybe like Bourbon Street, hmm. that type of environment. A lot of tourists, a lot of... And then inside those clubs, there's a lot of girls being sold that are 18, 19, 20. But then there's also a lot of 14, 15, 16-year-old girls as well. Hmm. A lot more when I started the work in 2014. And yeah, I do exactly what you said. I'll walk up to total strangers and I'll say, where can we find young girls? It's dangerous to say that, you yeah. know? And are you wearing like like little cameras or something? You're like, what? Yeah, we have technology that I can't talk about as much, but okay. we want to videotape those interactions. In the club, like in a dance club, we want to, we want to prove that this club is selling somebody. Hmm. Then we want to find out who owns this club. Yeah. Who's making the money? What other clubs? Because it's not own? just about finding that one low-level employee. It's like yeah. shutting the thing down yeah. and finding, getting the girls out. Yeah. Getting, rescuing the girls, but rescuing a girl without the justice piece is not doing much hmm. because some other girl is going to have to fill in that, that position. So we have to go pretty far to find the evidence that this is happening because the goal is, and law enforcement's main goal is arrest too. Mm -hmm. So I'm, that's, that works good. But to answer your question, some of it's red light districts. Some of it is our teams are doing an incredible job online right now. Hmm. So a lot of boys in Thailand are being sold on Facebook and Twitter. Really? Yeah. And then sometimes there's little brothels in the countryside, little karaoke clubs. Um, karaoke bars, it sounds like a weird thing, but in Asia, a lot of times business is done in a karaoke environment. <laughs> These guys will go and, and drink and, and they'll, you know, the karaoke club will offer a few girls for company. And those girls will come in and they're available for sex. But a lot of times those girls are minors or massage parlors. In Latin America, sometimes the law enforcement needs a Westerner because you mentioned, you know, hey, I'm an American. They call it the gringo effect. So they'll ask the Exodus Road, do you have somebody that's available for, we're trying to get a particular international cr criminal network to kind of come out of the woodwork. Hmm. They're using encrypted messaging apps. So we can't, we can't locate them. We can't find out. So we have strategic ways to draw them out, amazing strategic ways. And I get to be involved in that. And oftentimes I'm just a prop in that environment. You know, I'm just posing as a rich American that pays higher dollars for higher end uh, sex workers, which is, you know, there's a demand for that uh, driven by foreigners usually, mm. but that makes them feel comfortable. You know, this guy barely speaks any Spanish, you know, he, he's... And so I'm talking about music <laughs> with traffickers, you know, that are, you know, 25-year-old, 30-year-old traffickers that are running synthetic drugs as well, attending parties embedded with undercover male law enforcement, sometimes undercover female law enforcement, posing as sex workers. It's a variety of ways, but it, it never looks the same exactly. I mean, that sounds terribly dangerous. I, I don't know. So far, it hasn't been... <laughs> 
<laughs> so far. So it, it isn't until it is. Yeah, yes. and your wife's like, so you're gonna go over to Thailand and, and put, yeah, and try to take down a mafia and then come back next uh-huh. week. Like, what are those conversations like? She was like um, a little bit disappointed with the idea at first. That day I met Matt. I came home at midnight or so, and we talked about it. And Matt came up for breakfast the next morning. And uh, my wife said, David's going to join you. This will be our legacy. Like she hadn't made up her mind until the middle of breakfast. Hmm. And she's just been 100% on board ever since. She's been in to some places. I took one trip with my brother Philip and his wife Kate, Mm -hmm. where Kate and my wife Anna went with Matt on one side of the room with whatever their cover story was. And Mm -hmm. me and Philip were in together. And they did great. And Anna's... My wife, Anna's, um, some of her observations about, you know, I'd never thought about high heels. And so she's talking to these girls. Sometimes you use Google Translate about their high heels don't fit. And Hmm. um, she really brought a care and compassion that I I, I see everything through the lens that my wife helped install in me a little bit. A a female's perspective of that is really helpful. So when you get girls out of a situation like that, like where do they go? So our organization, the Exodus Road, focuses primarily on intervention. And because of focus on intervention, we, we kind of impact the prevention. There's three sides. There's prevention, there's intervention, and there's aftercare. Okay. And we're focusing on intervention, which um, it would be enabling these women and these girls and oftentimes boys to, to escape this environment. Mm-hmm. And like I said, when, when we're contributing to the rests, Mm-hmm. It's sending a message to criminal networks that somebody's paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, driving up the cost of hiring or paying for underage kids in this atmosphere and teenage girls. And it's driving into the shadows. It's making it more dangerous. So it's mm. helping with prevention. And then we're, we are in aftercare. We have social workers that help after someone's been rescued, try to get them into legitimate aftercare Mm -hmm. and that's something the exodus road is building up in the meantime though for the past uh six or seven years all my band's t-shirts all of remedy drives t-shirts are made by organizations that specialize in aftercare really so i took my whole family over three years ago and my daughters my son and my wife they saw my lyric on t-shirts being screen printed by girls that have been rescued from 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 slavery wow and now there's these organizations that are giving transitional employment they're giving um, transitional employment means uh, just well imagine imagine going to try to get a job at a coffee shop in Thailand and they're like what's your resume you have no resume that, and you're from the hill country they're like they're gonna use those terms that I don't use that yeah. she's probably just such and such right yeah. and yet that industry honestly the hustle that a lot of these teenage girls and the bravery imagine you know, we both have kids around 15, 16. Imagine one of our kids getting on the back of a motorcycle with a full-grown man and a motorcycle taxi driver. That's just been her life for mm. three, four, five years. So so she needs a resume. So part yeah. of what's so important about transitional employment is building up skill sets to give yeah. to give her options. Hmm. When I'm undercover, oftentimes I'll, I'll ask. And, and it seems like a weird thing to ask, but I, I'm just myself. I, I, I don't pretend to be anything else. I'm, I'm a kind person. And I'll say to her, um, if you didn't have to do this, I'll say it in Spanish or I'll write it on my phone or sometimes I can say it in simple English. 
what would you rather do? And I've been told so many times, I wish I could have done hair and makeup or I wish I could be a chef. Mm. So at Agape International Mission in Cambodia, my girls are on this side of a counter. On the other side of the counter is three 15, 16, 17-year-old girls in full-on chef outfits. And they made some oatmeal raisin cookies and mm. some snickerdoodles. And so we're, you know, they're laughing at my daughter, Stella, because Stella squats like a like an Asian girl. So she when she sits, my my daughter will, you know, kind of squat down. And that's kind of mm -hmm. normal in mm -hmm. Thailand and Cambodia. So they love her for it. And they love the little blonde girl. And they're kind of getting in trouble because they're not paying attention to the presentation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was just like, that was just so glorious for me. For most of my time, I only see one side of the issue. I don't get to see this beautiful. You don't see the restoration. The restoration. You see like the, the darkest of the dark. Yeah. Yeah. And there's really no reason. I don't need to see it. I'm doing my job. My mm -hmm. job is to find evidence of this broken system. Then I have to trust that the social workers are going to push the case forward so that sometimes hopefully she can, she can, she can, uh, what is it? Testify against her traffickers and then maybe not be reunited with her family. That's not always the best bet because hmm. in some, in some ways they might've been complicit in mm -hmm. how she ended up and where she ended up. So after you've done this and you've seen this kind of stuff, you, you come back to America how does your view of America change? Your view of, you can't be the same person coming back after yeah. doing this. How do you interact with American culture? How do you raise your kids in American culture with that awareness? Well, at first, there's an anger. Like sex trafficking falls under the umbrella of human trafficking. 40 million people enslaved. We built our economy on the backs of slavery and stolen land. And there's 10 million people impacted by that. It was way more brutal. It was way more obvious. Um, but I, I have, I'm meeting one of my friends that sang on um, a song called Brighter Than Apathy. His name's Nziza. He's from Congo. And his brother told me, I said, what, what, why are you here? And he pointed at my phone and he told me there's Colton in my phone. And just like blood diamonds, Colton's a blood mineral. Okay. It's um, part of the reason for their misery is the West and the East fighting over their resources, right? Mm. And, and propping, you know, kind of benefiting from that unrest. Because we need this little part to yeah. make our phones work. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote in my song, Warlike, the shrimp boats, the cocoa, the copper, the coffee, the colton, the cotton. Why am I bringing it up again and again? The tin and the timber, the sugar cane, it's still the same. We're looking the other way today. It feels like we've forgotten. Without the demand, there'd be no need for supply. You got blood on your hands, man. You got a plank in your eye. And I usually say I got a plank in my eye when I sing it now too, just to mm. take ownership. I ha Is this a blood diamond? I can't tell. I own blood minerals. They're in my cell phone. How do we accumulate such wealth? What if the war criminal is myself? And so I deal with that. Um, are these expensive jeans? How much slavery, how much misery was, you know, went into the making of my jeans that I'm wearing? So as a business owner, though, I know. Other than mm -hmm. maybe some, some of the parts of the CDs, I know where everything's coming from. And I have a responsibility, a moral responsibility. Hmm. As a consumer, I'm not sure. I'm still trying to figure that out. What are we supposed to do as consumers with our buying power? 
How do you, when you're at Target with your kids, how do you, do you process that with them? How do you, how do you impart this to them? Well, we talk a lot about clothes and that's kind of a catch 22 in a way, because I want to get my son like the coolest Jordans mm-hmm. and I want them to that. The new, the new Jordans. They're very cool. It, it took a while for me to, <laughs> to, to like come to grips with the fact that the new styles are cool. I've wanted a pair of Jordans since I was in seventh grade yeah. and I have yet to have any and they're always very cool. Yeah. So we're aware of it and we talk about it and we talk about that, that the changing styles are, are, you know, all of this, we're part of this and we're part of this ecosystem that does support slavery. The the United States of America is the biggest consumer of slavery in the world. We can't point our fingers at anybody. Like Mm. we are responsible. When you say consumer of slavery. Like, uh, yeah, of of goods impacted by slavery, like, uh, Mm. and, and related to it, the the misery I see around the world, um, similar to Congo, it, you can point it back to this idea. You know, my my daughter described it as dad. It's kind of like Pan Am, right? The capital is that the name of it? The cap the capital and Katniss Everdeen's. You know, Hunger, oh Hunger yeah, Games. sorry, I was like, and, <laughs> like the old airline. Yeah, it's like curious where he's going. We're yeah. all you know, we're all benefiting off of the misery of people that have to work so hard to. Mm-hmm. And I understand it's all complicated, but I don't know what to do. It works f- best when we don't see it, right? Yeah. And so I'm trying to, to see it. And then the kids, I think they're they're going to have to grapple with that growing up, but they're going to know that we did a little bit. Mm-hmm. And with my business, my band, we did a lot more. It costs a lot of money to buy T-shirts that way. Yeah. Like I can get a T-shirt for two or three bucks if I did it the normal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this that's expensive doing it that way. But hmm. people are generous too. Like people like the idea. They get a tag with someone's name that hmm. they've contributed to this person's freedom. So I'm I'm not sure what, what to do with it other than I have to maintain my joy. Hmm. And when I saw Al Andrews <laughs> after I came back the first time, I said, man, I feel like so less. Like I feel like I have less to offer my daughters. This has really impacted me. Um, I've seen things I can't talk about. And he said, well, you've acquainted yourself with grief. You put yourself in close proximity with sorrow. So don't ever feel like you've lost something. He said, Hmm. if anything, you're more like the pattern of humanity modeled after someone they said was a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And that helps me a lot. Hmm. Like it helps me a lot. So are there practices that you have in your life Towards joy? Yeah. And I've never done that before. What does that look like for you? I am not going to let that world steal anything from me. It it almost stole What the Fox Say. And that was an important song for us. (laughs) But to see... It was an important song for you. For me and the kids, right? Right. We loved it. The kids loved it. We saw a fox once and I just screamed one of the lines from the song out the window. Uh And... But then one day they were dancing to it when the girls were little, when I came back from a deployment and I had pictures of girls in a club, they played that song. Hmm. And I'm like, oh no, I can't. No, I'm not going to let that. I'm not going to let those traffickers steal that song from me. And in a way I owe it to the girls that are enslaved to, to be joyful. Hmm. I was in a brothel on my 13th wedding anniversary because I got called for a last minute deployment. Hmm. 
and the guy I'm sitting with, um, his wedding song came on in that same dance club that we were in. So like it's my the, anniversary. Like the uh, the traffickers. No, uh, one, or, my one partner with the okay, Exodus okay, Road. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And here we are away from our families. And we're, and that's something I've just learned to embrace. Like how, and there is a joy. I, um, I say I know this, and I, I, I do believe I know this, and it's not just for me, but mm-hmm. I know it to be true for me. Without sorrow, I don't think there's, there's any way to really access true joy and true fulfillment, true purpose. Yeah. I really believe that without an intentionality about putting myself in proximity with someone else's sorrow and taking on their sorrow and carrying it alongside of them. There's joy in that. Mm-hmm. Happiness is overrated. Hmm. You know, it's, it's really overrated, but there's a joy in participating in someone else's freedom. It's, it's woven into the fabric of our souls. It's like, I, I really truly believe it's somehow part of a really intricate design that we find our joy if we're willing to, to lay aside our happiness. Hmm. That's really, that's really profound. So if people want to get involved in this, whether, I mean, I imagine people might say, I'd love to support this and be a, Mm. be a part of this. I don't know that I'm going to wear spy gear and go to Cambodia. How can people get involved? How can people help? So it's been so cool. Cause like I said, none of this was planned and Mm. now we have three albums. They're all focused on this, a trilogy. Hmm. If you want to go overseas and wear spy gear, you can get vetted. I just came back from a vetting. 60 people applied, seven made the cut, and then five people passed the vetting. There's psychological evaluations. One guy that saw us at a concert moved his whole family to Thailand. He passed vetting. He's been there for so many raids, especially with a lot of teenage boys. He's helped rescue so many teenage boys. That's an option. But I, because I get asked so often and I don't have a great response, mm. um, I put at remedydrive.com slash action, just a bunch of examples. Mm. Lady runs a 5K in stiletto high heels, gets all sorts of awareness and funds, puts, mm. puts it towards the Exodus Road. Some girls planted a garden, harvested the peppers, made pepper jam and sold it and gave their funds oh, to the Exodus cool. Road. You can text REMEDY to 51555. And you'll get updates that'll say two girls rescued in Thailand, you know, six traffickers arrested. And so you can see oh, what wow. we're part of. Yeah. And, and you can get a chance to, I'm developing maybe like a subscription model where, where I give some overseas content, behind the scenes content for people that do like a monthly thing too. Mm-hmm. So there's so many creative ways to get involved. I don't want to limit your involvement by giving you a, yeah, you know, like do this, just get creative. I had a rock and roll band. That's a currency that I have. Mm-hmm. And I decided, like we talked about, to invest that currency, to invest the, bo- the most valuable thing I have on this modern day abolition, yeah. on justice, on mercy, on compassion. Everybody has a currency. We're using the currency of these microphones right now to shine a little light on injustice. And so my challenge to anybody listening, whether it's your time, your art, your youth, your moral capital, you have a currency. What What if you could invest it? You're going to invest it somewhere. You're going to spend it somewhere. Hmm. And if you spend yourself, if you spend your life on behalf of the oppressed, there's a light there. There's something really brilliant about it. And I'm no longer shy about inviting you in. Yeah. Because like I said, you want 
you want that sorrow. You 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 need it. It's a necessary hmm. ingredient in fulfilling the purpose that we're seeking for. Wow, man, that is that is amazing. And people can find the Exodus Road like exodusroad.com. Yeah. Okay. And you'll get you know if you text Remedy to five one five five five, you'll get a link from them for how to how to help. But That's once great. you're on that list, you don't have to you don't have to give financially on that list. Here here's a cool thing that I'm in the middle of right now. I don't quite know what uh, what Twitch is. <laughs> I've I've heard about it. Yeah. But there's a network of of TikTok influencers who, mm-hmm. who Twitch out their streaming their video games mm-hmm. and they're gonna do a fundraiser for the Exodus Road uh, in cool. April. And I'm gonna get to play, you know, Among Us and maybe some Smash Brothers and and they're gonna raise a bunch of funds that way. Hmm. So uh, do what you already love doing. Yeah. I love rock and roll. I'm gonna harness my love of rock and roll and mm-hmm. I'm gonna use it for freedom and justice and mercy. And so, that's cool. So everybody has something cool. That's really cool. Um yeah. I, I and these I, in these podcasts I say, go do something awesome. And that mm-hmm. is an, like <laughs> like what a great way to 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 think about that of of using the capital that you have, where yeah. you're gonna invest that. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, before we go, just because it's fun, uh, you also, as a as sort of a hobby side thing, yeah. you flip electric pianos. Yeah. Tell me about that because I think that is so fascinating. Like, see, because I, I mentioned when I said, uh, when I was, you walked in, I said, I saw you play a CP70 live, yeah. which nobody plays live, which is like yeah. an old uh, Yamaha stage piano that's just like enormous and weighs a thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. And you tour with that thing. Um, when you don't have to. Yeah. So you, uh, where'd you, where'd you like get invested in electric pianos? Well, I mean, it's when the daylight video came out in 2008, mm-hmm. I guess I had it for a couple years before that. Cause we were always piano fronted. Yeah. Part of it, to be honest, is the prop factor for me. And they look amazing. Yeah. And they sound so cool. Yeah. When they work. Yeah. Which is work. almost never. But being able to stand on it, kind of roll off of it, jump mm-hmm. off of it. But then I got a CP60 was the upright version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for yeah. a while, I put a light in the bottom of that that was changing and shining on the oh, strings. Cool. It just looks beautiful. And there's the the more we push towards digital, like John Mayer said, I'm an analog soul in a digital world. So I like hmm. being able to hold on to a little bit of that real. Like there's something about a hammer hitting a string. Even yeah. if nobody else knows it, I know it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... Dave Moore would get frustrated. He's like, hey, you just moved from the kind of out-of-tune cool thing to the, <laughs> to the very really out-of-tune. annoying out-of-tune, this is unprofessional. And in in uh, short order, yeah. Yeah, and it can happen overnight, depending. You, you go from, you know, Southern California to, to, to you know, wherever you're going the next day. The yeah. Humidity, I don't, the barometric pressure might No, there's it. a reason people take keyboards on the road. Yeah. Like digital keyboards, yeah. So I've I just I just love it. I've had I've broken so many on the road that I've had to always have two or three on hand, just for to piece them together. Yeah, and they were inexpensive back in the day before they got real popular. Yeah, they weren't cool. Yeah. And now they're now they're cool again. Yeah, Keen put the CP seventy B back on the map, but it, but it's when when you're hearing the dun 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 dun, dun, dun like uh, Edge is playing that's a CP. Yeah, and he used a CP live. So Edge from U2. I forget who else used them, but. Yeah. No, they're awesome. They're awesome. Put it on a t-shirt, you know. So you drive, so you, now you say you'll look, you'll drive around and look for them when you're out on the road. And yeah. Kind of flip them like some people flip houses. You yeah. flip old pianos. Yeah. Not the same return on investment. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> 
I know enough about them and I got enough spare parts um, that I, I got the felt, I got strings. And it is, it is one of the things looking back at my history as a musician, I wish I would have got more in touch with the instruments. Hmm. Like I was never a wiring and retubing guitar amp kind of guy. Yeah. I don't like redoing my strings. Like if someone I wants to changing strings. Yeah. Some some people love it though. Like seeing Jack, man, I always get Jack Black and Jack White mixed up. Seeing Jack White <laughs> on it might get loud where he's he has that weird looking guitar at the uh-huh. beginning that he's building. Like I want to be that more there's something about that. Yeah. Just getting more in touch with things. So that's mm-hmm. how it's been with me and the piano. Yeah, that's, that's so fun. I mean, they're beautiful instruments. Yeah. Man. Uh well man, thank you so much for being here. If people want to find out uh about the band. Wait, what do you guys have going on? Is there, is there new music? We released Imago Amor uh, early early this year. Okay. And that's our most re- that's our third in the trilogy of counter-trafficking albums. That's awesome. And then eventually... Someday uh, you might go on the road again. We might go on the road again. And maybe to kind of soft launch that, I might start doing like some back porch solo, solo concerts. Yeah. Which would be like nice intimate times to talk about the work, maybe share some video footage of the work and... I'm looking forward to that. Oh, that'd be so and more cool. of a story storyteller setting about the songs because they're all all these songs are informed by this work now. Hmm, that's beautiful, man. That's really cool. Well, thank you for being here. What yeah, a treat, thank you, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Whoo, man! Wow. Friends, you can get involved with the work David and Exodus Road are doing by going to remedydrive.com/action. Their new album, Imago Amor, is out now and available everywhere. He also sent me a link of a really amazing video. It's about like a 15-minute little mini-documentary, so you can see more of the work that they're doing, and I'll put that in the show notes. Guys, fh.org slash pivot. $28 a month sends two chickens to a family in need somewhere in the world, and this is an amazing way for you to put some good into the world. And over the past few months, hundreds of families have now been helped through the Pivot, Food for the Hungry, and the Chicken of the Month Club. Join us, won't you? It's amazing work. fh.org slash pivot. Thank you guys so much for listening. We've got a really, really fun episode next week. I can't wait for it. Uh, You guys are the best. Stay safe, stay healthy, and now go do something awesome. Mm